Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525 welcome to in the word a ministry of calvary chapel of orlando we hope that god speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse chapter by chapter with senior pastor will ramirez in the book of luke praise to the god who reigns Jesus has had his earthly ministry for three years up to this point in Luke. He knows the time has come to be betrayed, beaten, and crucified. Jesus and the disciples are now in the city of Jerusalem during the Passover. Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' disciples, put it in his heart to betray Jesus. Jesus began to celebrate the Passover feast with his disciples, instituting communion with the twelve, including Judas, who would betray him that night. Jesus washed the disciples' feet and prayed for them, but they still argued about who was the greatest amongst themselves. Jesus told them that to be great in the kingdom of God, you must be the least. To be the servant of all is to be greatest in the kingdom of God. We join Pastor Will in Luke chapter 22, verse 35. We saw at the beginning the Passover feast celebrated by Jesus and his disciples together and the special time they had together doing that. But while that was special, the time afterwards became very sobering for the disciples. Jesus had to remind them about being humble servants because they were arguing over who was greatest. And then he predicted that the enemy had been granted permission to toss their lives up into the air. So much so that Peter would deny the Lord three times. The Gospel of John goes on to explain how Jesus then taught them what to do after he was gone, how they would need to depend upon the Holy Spirit, how the world would hate them and they needed to love the world, how they needed to love one another and that's how they would shine for the world. Luke doesn't record that part of the evening, but he jumps right instead to the end, right before they leave that home and they go to the Garden of Gethsemane, the part at the end where Jesus explains that everything's going to be different after tonight. So chapter 22, we pick it up in verse 35. And he, Jesus, said unto them, When I sent you without purse and scrip and shoes, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. So then he said unto them, but now he that has a purse, let him take it. And likewise his scrip. And he that has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say unto you that this that is written must yet be accomplished in me. And he was reckoned among the transgressors. For the things concerning me have an end. And he said, Lord, behold, here are two swords. And he said unto them, is enough. This first section here, we're going to get into the part where Jesus goes and prays. But this first section here is where Jesus is preparing them for what's going to happen tonight. He says, when I sent you out without purse and scrip and shoes, did you lack anything? When Jesus is talking here, he refers to the two missions he sent them on earlier in Luke. Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 6, you can read about it later. Luke 10, verses 1 through 17, where he said, listen, don't go home and pack. Don't take, go home and get extra money. Don't go home and get extra shoes. I need you to go and reach these people right now. Go. And, and the Lord will take care of you. The place you go into, the, God will provide for you. He'll take care of your needs. But you go and you teach the truth. You go heal the sick. You go cast out demons. You go minister to the people. And they did. 
And so there was no time to go home and to pack and prepare for where these missions would take them. They had to trust God to provide for their needs. And guess what God did? That's what they said. He said, when, when I sent you out like that, did you lack anything? They said, no. God took care of us. They lacked nothing while God used them mightily in these various towns that they visited. But their future service to God is going to be very different from those other two missions. Their future service to God moving forward from here won't be like that at all. For then he said unto them, but now. And the word but is the strongest form of contrast in the Greek. The mission that they're going to be on in the future is going to be exactly opposite of how that mission went. He says, but now he that has a purse, let him take it. And likewise, his scrip, his money bag, his, let him get a suitcase, let him get his money bag, and he that has no sword, let him sell his garment and go buy one. The mission they'd been on originally required haste, but they would eventually return back to their homes, back to their families, back to normal life. The mission they're going to be on for the rest of their lives is going to take them from the safety of their homes, from everything they know. Why does Jesus tell them this now? Because that new mission is going to start tonight. Everything, nothing will be the same for these men and their families after tonight. Nothing, everything will be different after tonight. For he says to them in verse 37, that this that is written must yet be accomplished in me. He says, something was written in the Old Testament. Something was predicted, prophesied in the Old Testament about me. And it hasn't happened yet, but it's going to happen tonight. And the verse that he quotes here is Isaiah 53, 12. And it says, and he was reckoned among the transgressors. Now, Isaiah 53 is that wonderful messianic psalm where it says he was bruised for our transgressions. He was scourged for our iniquities. And all of the weight of our sin was laid upon him. It says, all we like sheep have gone astray and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. It says he was accounted with the transgressors. It talks about how he'd be buried in a tomb that wasn't his, the tomb of the rich, Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. All these things were prophesied in Isaiah 53. There was no form of comeliness. We wouldn't even be able to recognize him as a human being after what the Romans would do to him. All that was prophesied in Isaiah 53. The father would see the sacrifice of his soul and he'd be satisfied for our sin. All of that was prophesied in Isaiah 53. But Jesus points out this specific one here that he was reckoned, the word there means considered or to have an opinion that he's among the transgressors, those who refuse to obey the law, the law that he's a criminal. Jesus would be held under the opinion of the people and then those that would prosecute him after this night that he was a criminal and he would be treated like a criminal even though he had done nothing wrong. Jesus brings up the point, but the things concerning me have an end. I'm telling you this because they're going to look at you that way from now on. See, the things concerning me have an end. They can't do anything more to me after they kill me on the cross. Those that follow Jesus from this time forward will be treated like criminals until he returns. Now that's the new mission. The new mission isn't to preach the gospel to a hospitable people who will take us in. To go into a town and say, we're here to tell you the good news about the Messiah, to heal the sick and pray for those who are oppressed. Is anyone willing to take us in? The new mission is to take the gospel to those who hate us and view us as criminals. Uh, last night I was listening to some banter on, online and 
it was going on and on about how the government just needs to get their nose out of everybody's business. And of course, eventually, you know, someone decided to bring up, yeah, they need to make sure that they keep religion out of their business as well. And of course, what were they referring to as morality, right and wrong. We shouldn't make laws that restrict what marriage is or what other thing, you know, all that kind of stuff that, you know, they were talking about that, whatever. My first thought is it's funny how, you know, you could say morality is that when that, that, well, that's wrong for government to do that, but that's morality for you to say that's anyway, I don't want to get into that silly (laughs) circular nonsense. But the point being is that their mindset is that the the only people should be criminals is those who should, are trying to make other people do what's right. You know, while we may live in relative ease and safety here in the U.S., the general concept that people have held towards Christians and Christianity is that, that we're criminals. We're a problem. Our mission, even though we may live in the relative safety and ease of the U.S., is to preach the gospel to those who hate us and view us as criminals. Will God ever call someone onto a mission where people take them in and provide for them? Well, of course that can happen. Certainly that can happen. But the majority of Christians have throughout history, still do today, and will continue until the Lord returns. The majority of us will find ourselves as strangers even in our homeland. Our enemies sometimes even being our neighbors and our family. That is what the Bible says. That's what the Bible says. Now, does that mean we should all be gun-toting, canned food-storing money hoarders? Not at all. Not at all but neither should we be naive. I have known, unfortunately, not that I've known them, but I've seen this happen. I've known many Christians who have foolishly expected the world to dance to their every request or who thought it impossible to be lied to or harmed or taken advantage of because, well, I'm a king's kid. I'm a child of the king. And so they've blundered into situations they should not blunder into. They've made unwise decisions. They've expected the world, well, I'm, I've prayed about this. They've, they, they need to give me favor. And then only to be disappointed because God didn't come through afterwards. Jesus told him, he said, guys, you're going to be viewed as criminals. You're going to be looked at as the enemy. Make sure you got your suitcase with you. Make sure you got your wallet with you. And you might want to sell your garment and go buy a sword. Is it okay for a Christian to carry a weapon to protect themselves? Of course it is. Is it okay to save up money for the challenges you might face? Of course. Proverbs even calls that wise. Is it smart to not just trust everyone you meet and everything you hear because God's favors on your life? Yes, absolutely. I always say I should have been born in Missouri because it's called the show me state. I don't trust anything. I don't. I don't trust anybody. I've had Christians come to me and say, well, you know, but this nice man said he, you know, said that he was a Christian and that if I invested in his business, this and this and this and this. They didn't do any research. They didn't look anything up. And they just took his word for it and helped him out. There's been more deception over naive Christians that goes here in the freedom that we have in the United States, unfortunately, allows people to take advantage. There are guys who make their living on TV ripping off widows and, and other people because they can't get out of their home, so they think they're watching a television program where they're hearing God's word when in fact they're just being ripped off by a charlatan. Don't be naive. Paul himself praised the people of Berea. He said, these Christians, they got better blood because they actually checked me out after they heard me teach. If Paul the apostle can be checked out, anybody can be checked out. 
As I say this, it's okay to carry a weapon to protect yourself. It's okay to save up money for future challenges. You know, not to be naive and trust everyone and everything you meet. Please recognize two other things, though. Number one, we are not to go on the physical offensive against our enemies. Do you understand that? That is not the charge of Scripture, all right? I see a lot of Christians out there who are very proud of their self-defense abilities. And it almost looks like they're itching for a fight. I've even, I've even heard people comment, not at our church, of course, <laughs> comment, oh, I hope a terrorist comes to our church because, man, he'd be dead before he even whips out the whatever, you know? And I'm thinking, is that really what we want? We really want to send some Muslim to hell in a blaze of glory and whew, blow off our guns, you know, the smoke off our guns and think we did our job? That's really what we're about? We aren't to go on the physical offensive against our enemies. And then number two, we are not to live in paranoia as if everything depends upon us. I know a lot of paranoid Christians. Listen, there are, there are Christians living in India and Indonesia who regularly face death, regularly face death. And they are not walking around paranoid that the government's out to get them and everybody else is out to kill them. And so we've got to have our bunker and we've got to make sure we're up to date on all the secret websites info because we need to find out what the government's really doing. Let me tell you what. I keep my ears enough open to know generally what's going on. I live a much more peaceful life not knowing everything that's going on because it's not my concern. I was in Peru on a mission trip when... No, I wasn't. I was in Israel when the law was passed that legalized gay marriage. And immediately, all these texts, Pastor, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And I'm like, what do you mean, what are we going to do? We're going to walk with Jesus. Like, it didn't change from yesterday. You know, it's not like all of a sudden, you know, everything changed now. Now we can't just walk with Jesus. Now we can't just share the gospel. Now we can't just obey the Lord. Cost us something a little more. But that was always there before, too. What's the point? It's not that I don't care. My point is it doesn't affect me. I still am to walk with Jesus, obey him, preach the gospel, even if people hate me. Preach to those who hate me with the love of Christ that he showed to me when I didn't love him either. So we aren't to live in paranoia as if everything depends upon us. You can have your bunker. You can have your canned food. You can have all your plans and preparations. But the Lord is going to take care of you. So people ask me, say, what do we do about this, Pastor? And I say, pray. Find out what the Lord wants you to do. And if you in faith can say that this is what the Lord wants you to do, fine. If you're doing it out of fear, though, don't. Because that's not the Lord, that's the enemy. Trying to get you derailed off the mission. Jesus gave us our marching orders. He said, I I send you out as sheep among wolves. Think about that for a moment, okay? Think about that. Have you ever seen a sheep? It's not exactly ferocious looking, right? No one in their right mind would take this little sheep, little dirty, nasty, dumb sheep, and say, hey, leave the flock, leave the shepherd. You see those wolves over there? Go play with them, make friends. Win them over to us. No one in their right mind would do that. A sheep stands no chance. But that's what Jesus said. That's what I'm doing with you. I'm sending out a sheep amongst wolves. So we go recognizing that we may be called to lay our lives down so that a wolf can become a sheep. And when Jesus sent them out like that, he said, 
I want you to be wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. Matthew 10, 16. Wise as serpents, harmless as doves. That's what he's telling them here. Now, there's more focus on the wise as serpents part. Take a money bag. Take a suitcase. Go get a sword. Right? Now, Jesus was wise. He didn't allow himself to be caught in the enemy's traps. When they came up to him and said, Hey, master, teacher, wonderful person, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? What does God think? Jesus didn't go, Oh, these wonderful people want to know the truth about what God thinks about paying taxes. Look at this wonderful pit here. I'm going to jump in. No, he didn't do that. And when they were clearly not genuine, like when they asked him, they said, Hey, uh, tell us by what authority to do these things. He's like, you don't care about what my answer is. So he said, I'll ask you a question. If you answer that, I'll tell you the answer to the question you asked. John's baptism, from heaven or not? From heaven or from man? And when they didn't give him a genuine answer, he said, I'm not having this conversation with you. You get genuine with me, I'll be genuine with you. You don't want to be genuine with me, then I'm not, we're not having a conversation. Jesus recognized. He discerned when his audience were sheep who needed feeding or if it was wolves who needed weeding. He recognized that. He was wise. And he didn't cast his pearls to swine. So we need to be wise. But Jesus was also harmless. He never let his anger rule him, even when he was angry about the wickedness around him. Listen, if there's anybody, you know, people say, well, someone needs to do something. If there's anyone who could have done something, who had the ability to do something and was there right in the middle of it, it was him. And what did he do? He went to a cross. He didn't pull out a weapon. Yes, he cleansed the temple. I get that. But he didn't kill them all. Clearly, it didn't fix things because they were right back there again. He had to do it again at the end of his ministry. He went to a cross for them. So trust me, if Jesus wasn't the person to do something about all the evil, neither are you. He will do something about all the evil when he comes back. But he was harmless. He never let anger rule him. He showed compassion to those in need. He didn't look out there and say, look at someone who is demon-possessed and go, how'd you get there? I bet you're into pornography. I bet you do drugs. I'm not helping that person. You don't see any of those comments coming out of his mouth. And he put himself at risk to help others. And he always lived a pure and a holy life. Jesus was never a threat that you would be harmed by him. So by all means, have an emergency fund. Procure the means to defend yourself. But give not just out of your abundance, but out of your need when someone needs help. And love your enemies and pray for them. And be willing to lay down your life so that someone might hear the gospel. Now, the disciples... After Jesus tells them this, they said, well, Lord, behold, which means check this out. Lord, it's okay. you didn't have to tell us this. We already came prepared. We've got two swords already. And Jesus says it's enough. Why did Jesus say it's enough? Because if the disciples need to go to battle, I'm not an expert at math. However, if there's 11 of them and they only have two swords, that doesn't sound like a very efficient way to do battle. I would think that if the Lord intended them to fight the soldiers who were coming with Judas in just a few hours, that he would say, it's not enough. You need nine more, dummy heads. None of you, I've been with you three years and you don't even know math. That's certainly not what Jesus meant when he said it's enough. But that's what the disciples thought he meant. So these two swords, what were they enough for? Well, they were plenty for a scattered group looking to survive the night, to scare off thieves or to scare off you know, those who would want to harm them as they're scattering, trying to find some place of safety in the middle of the night. They aren't even close to what they need to take on the temple guards who are coming with Judas. 
And it just shows to me, I think, that the disciples missed the point again. See, Jesus told them that this new mission where they'd need a sword was for after his death on the cross, not to protect him from the cross. Which is why Jesus says something very different when Peter tries to use one of these swords in the garden. In Matthew 26, and it almost sounds contradictory, but we have to understand the context. In Matthew 26, verses 52 through 54, after Peter takes one of those swords and takes a swipe at the high priest's servant, poor guy, he's just there helping out, cuts off his ear, guarantee it wasn't aiming for an ear, all right? You know, it's not like Peter's going, anybody else want to lose an ear? He was aiming to kill the guy. He was aiming to do battle, to keep them from arresting Jesus. But he's a fisherman, he's not a soldier. I know a lot of Christians are trying to be soldiers when they're supposed to be fishermen. So then said Jesus unto him, put up again your sword into his place. For all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Do you think that I cannot now pray to my father and he shall presently give me more than 12 legions of angels? It's almost like he says, Peter, that's not what the sword was for. (laughs) That's not what it was for. Not to go on the offensive, not to keep me from going to the cross. Not to preserve what we've had. The sword was for your safety is they take me and you leave. Don't you realize that if I want to stop this, I can do it like that? If you want to take up the sword and you want to fight against the enemy like that, that's how you're going to die, Peter. Which leaves us with one last note on what the Bible has to say on the topic of self-defense. Jesus said the one who takes up the sword will perish by the sword. Do you know that God never promises a Christian that he'll be protected if he exercises self-defense? Nowhere in the Bible. Wait, wait, what about all those times that David talks about the Lord will protect him and give him a strong right arm and help him strengthen his hand for war? Yeah, that's David, an Old Testament believer underneath the theocracy of Israel. God never promises that he will protect a Christian who decides to use self-defense. What's the point? The point is this. Be wary of your attitude toward self-defense because it should be exercised only when it's necessary to defend yourself or to defend the weak. Those are the only times that a Christian should be using it. It should never be used to scratch your itch for a fight. And too often, I see Christians today itching for a fight. They are itching for a fight. Willing to latch onto anything someone says or does and they're ready to go to war. And guys, that is not our mission. Our mission is not to point the weapon at the enemy and say, you come over here and I'll blast you. Our mission is to go onto their ground and love them and preach the gospel to them. That's our mission. Not say, well, if you come over here and you're nice and safe, then we'll tell you about Jesus at the point of a sword. Our mission is to go onto their territory where we're in danger and to love them and teach the, preach the gospel to them even at the cost of our own lives, if necessary. That's our mission. And it'll be our mission until Jesus comes back. I need to bring up one more thought. Because this aggression that I see amongst Christians in the United States, in particular, is not necessarily present in other places. And I see it bubbling over into the way we treat one another at times. And so not only are we ready to fight with the enemy, we're almost immediately ready to look at our brother and sister as the enemy. And so we're ready to go, man. Somebody says something I don't like, I don't agree with, we are ready to go. And wonderful technology, we have all sorts of places where we can go at it. 
If you are arguing with another brother or sister on social media, that is not what Christ would have us do. That's not, that's not Jesus at all. Because here's the thing, when all those other people are watching, do you think they're wanting what you have? I'm not wanting what you have, so I'm certain they aren't. Jesus said, this is how all men will know that you're my disciples, by the love that you have one for another. If you have a serious disagreement with somebody who's a brother or a sister, pull them aside privately, like the Bible says to. Don't take it public. Don't take it to text. Don't take it to group text. Don't take it to social media. See, but Pastor what they said was wrong. Okay, welcome to the life. People say things you're not going to like all the time. If it's that big a deal that you think something needs to be said, how about exercising some self-control, some spirit-led self-control instead of flesh-driven, out-of-control, and pull them aside privately at a later date? Most of the time, (laughs) when I'm upset about something and I'm ready just, you know, I immediately know I got to stop and I need to think about this for a while. Do you know what happens nine out of 10 times? I don't do anything about it. Nine out of 10 times, as a day goes by, my temper cools, I'm not in the flesh anymore, and I start to just kind of chill, and I'm like, you know what? It's really not that big a deal. And here's the cool part. If it is that big a deal, I spent an entire day getting the big old log of flesh out of my own eye so I can lovingly and biblically go and say, brother, sister, you got a speck over here, and I want to help you with it. I can do it in love. I can do it with sincerity. I can do it under the power of the Spirit and not under the flesh. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.